0: Wellbeing, your radio guide to a healthier lifestyle. Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reed, and today I'm delighted to have on the program Associate Professor Simon Keeley, Chief Investigator at the Gastrointestinal Research Group at the HMRI. Do you mind explaining um, what HMRI is and what that position means?
1: Yes, so um, uh, HMRI is the Hunter Medical Research Institute, which is, uh, I guess, a, a collaboration and collective of uh, clinicians, basic science researchers, public health researchers Uh, all from the Hunter community, across Hunter New England Health and the University of Newcastle, uh, who've come together into a building that's on the John Hunter Hospital campus uh, that serves as a a translational institute. So what that means is that the researchers at this institute look at everything from um, the epidemiology, so uh, disease occurrence or incidence in in the Hunter community, uh, to... uh, clinical research dealing with, with trials or, um, or studies in, in patient populations, down to molecular biology and cell biology, where they look at how the, the, the mechanism or the, uh, the, the pathways that drive disease uh, occur. So it, it's really a bench to bedside institution.
0: Fantastic. So you're more at the cellular biology level?
1: Uh, well, my group actually spans the, the entire spectrum. So, so within, within my team, um, we, have, uh, we have clinical immunologists, we have cell biologists, but we have gastroenterologists and surgeons as well.
0: Okay, so all of you looking at the gut, basically.
1: Yes, yes, that, that's, the, that's the theme that brings us all together.
0: Okay, terrific. And I think what I saw that interested me when I looked at your biography online was the research that you've done, I think, for quite a while on gut bacteria and um, immune and, and health of the gut.
1: Yes, so, um, I mean, we know, and when I say we... The, the, the research community and, and, and medical professions have known for a long time that that the balance between uh, our our immune system uh, that protects us from infection and the microbiota so the the commensal bacteria that that live on and uh, and within cavities of our body um, have uh, a truce so we call it homeostasis or, or a balance whereby uh, uh, there's a a symbiotic relationship. They provide critical functions in the in the context of the gut digestion um, and protection against uh, I guess more invasive or or dangerous pathogens. Uh, and in return, um, our immune system has a tolerance for them and and allows them to colonize and live on our body. But in some diseases, and in fact we appreciate now in many diseases. Uh, this balance seems to be lost. Now it's a little unclear still uh, if the balance is lost uh, as a consequence of something else that happens uh, that drives the disease, or if the the loss of balance is the reason that these some of these diseases develop themselves. Uh, but certainly the loss of balance contributes generally to the the stage or the progression of the disease, and and because of that, it's become a, a A real interest within the community for a range of diseases and and a lot of people trying to target it as a a therapeutic strategy.
0: I suppose that's true but I I suppose I also look at it that the diet that supports those bacteria that bacterial balance is actually quite good for us in a lot of ways.
1: There's a lot of evidence uh, that that diet environment lifestyle uh, plays uh, a role in in changing uh, the balance between our body's immune system and, and the microbiota. I mean, I guess one way to look at it is is that what you eat feeds you, but it also feeds your microbiota. So if you have a have a diet that is particularly rich in carbohydrates or, or low in fiber, then the microbes that, uh, that are selected or that thrive in your gut um, are the ones that are best suited to Uh, or to eat or digest foods that are are low in fiber or higher in carbohydrates or or whatever way you go. So, you know, the best way to look at your, your microbiome is really as an ecology. You know, people tend to talk about the microbiome like it's a single organism or a thing. But the best way to t- think about our, our digestive tract is, is uh, it, your own unique ecology, much like a forest ecology or a, or a marine ecology. There are an awful lot of different organisms uh, that uh, collaborate, communicate and compete within our microbiota. And, you know, they, they will compete for, for resources um, such as food, just like like uh, any other ecology
0: so feeding them certain diets will mean that you support certain colonies more than you will other colonies
1: um well yes that that's that's the hypothesis so that's what we think is occurring again you know the, the big problem with a lot of microbiome studies is that you know a lot of our data is purely associative so we can say that one population is enriched or or one population is decreased or lost in, in, a, in a certain disease, but we're still not quite at the stage where, you know, we asked that we're able to ask the question to what end? So how does this increase in this population functionally cause a disease or effect? So it's probable, um, that, and, and this is what our research is actually investigating in, in a number of diseases, that things like diet, or inflammation might uh, confer a survival advantage to some groups of bacteria that actually help promote or help um, progress a disease. So yes, I mean, I guess one good example would be um, we do know that gluten, for instance, is uh, is digested. So humans lack a lot of the the enzymes that are required to break down gluten, and although again, there's no definitive evidence of this, Uh, the suggestion is is that perhaps people who seem to be more sensitive to gluten are missing microbes uh, that can digest it properly, whereas the people who are able to tolerate gluten have those microbes. That's the kind of notion that we're talking about when we think about how the microbiota might interact with diet. Mm,
0: There's a balance to be had. Mm. Not to confuse it, of course, with celiac disease, which is a completely different uh, pathogenesis, if you like.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so celiac, with celiac disease, our, our body is actually formed an immune response to gliadin, which is a, a component a peptide of gluten. But again, the question and gliadin is a very immunogenic compound. So, what that means is that it actually aggravates or stimulates the immune system quite strongly. The question again becomes: Why, in some patients, do we um, do we uh, have? Uh, uh, an immune response uh, to, to gluten or gluten and, and other patients or other people we don't so why do some people develop celiac disease and others don't now there is a genetic risk but the, the genetics don't tend to account wholly for the incidence of the disease
0: I agree they'll often not have it anywhere in the family <clears> or any yes. other immune disorders Uh, whereas I find inflammatory bowel disease is a little bit different. Can you comment on the um, microbiome and inflammatory bowel disease?
1: Yes, so I mean this is one of our areas of of interest and focus. Um, So we know that the microbiome is radically changed in, in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, which there's two major diseases with inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Now, while the symptoms for those diseases tend to be quite simple or similar from a patient point of view, um, the diseases themselves, the pathology, the uh, immunology of them are very, very distinct. So they're, they're not actually um, the same disease. Um, GI diseases tend to have very similar symptoms, which makes sometimes makes them hard to differentiate. Um, in both cases, though, you have a, a, an altered microbiota. And again, the nature of this change isn't really well appreciated we don't know if it's the cause of inflammatory bowel disease so there are an awful lot of people who think that um, the change in the microbiome is what aggravates our immune system uh, and the immune system is directed in part uh, so the inflammation that we get inflammatory bowel disease is the immune system's directed response against changes in the microbiota which may or may not be the case or if the change in the microbiota is just a signal uh, or, or sorry a symptom of the the inflammation now there have been studies um, in in patients undergoing surgery um, where parts of uh, badly affected parts of their bowel have to be removed um, due to the inflammation with inflammatory bowel disease where they've looked at the microbiota and they found that um, it can actually predict the patients who will relapse uh, and a lot of this work was done in Melbourne but we were collaborating with the uh, uh, the group who, or some part of the groups who, who who performed this study. So the microbiota is actually quite good at, at predicting the p- patients who will have continuing disease versus those who tend to um, stay in remission uh, a, a bit longer. Now a lot of the studies have looked at stool microbiota. So basically they've taken poo um, and and they've broken down and looked at the microbiota uh, there. but. Most of the the really good research that's coming out now has shown that it's actually the bacteria that live on the lining of your GI tract. So the lining of your your colons or your large bowel um, or your small intestine that are more predictive of your disease um, and whether or not you'll relapse. And that's the area that we're looking at there. We want to understand um, how the microbes change along the lining of the GI tract and whether or not uh, it's the 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 host, so the light, the changes with the inflammation that is altering the microbiota, or whether it's the the microbiota driving the disease. An awful lot of lifestyle factors such as BMI and you know smoking habits and things like that you that you have to really control for but we we do see so one of the things that people often report um, across a range of GI diseases is that you get a, a loss of diversity so what that means is, is that you know there are estimates of how many different types of bacteria live in anybody's GI tract and you know some people will say it's you know up to tens or hundreds of millions of of different individual, different types of bacteria. Um, Overall, what you tend to see is, um, is a a reduction in the, in the families of bacteria. So the, the, the interrelated species um, and the actual overall burden to the number of bacteria that live in the gut when you have disease. Uh, and again the nature of that we're not entirely sure but often it's seen as as a, as a good predictor that something is going wrong. Um, we set, certainly see that consistently around the world in inflammatory bowel disease. Um, uh, you sometimes see it in uh, patients with colorectal cancer and then there are other conditions um, w- such as uh, irritable bowel syndrome so these are chronic conditions of constipation or diarrhea or functional dyspepsia which is really more of an upper GI disease, which it feels like pain and bloating and heartburn, where we see switches in the populations uh, uh, more so than anything else. So some bacteria become more abundant than others in, in in those diseases.
0: And is there any specific treatments that have come out of this sort of research at this point in time?
1: Yeah, so um, again, a, a lot of these... Uh, treatments targeting the microbiota um, are, uh, are experimental uh, to some degree, but uh, there is a, a non-absorbed um, antibiotic. So this is an antibiotic that, that tends to stay within the GI tract, but doesn't travel throughout the system. So it really only targets uh, the, the microbiota. Um, and what, in patients with irritable bowel syndrome and, and, and functional dyspepsia, And there have been studies show that about half of the patients tend to to find relief from symptoms when they go through a course of these antibiotics, at least in the short term. So, you know, up to maybe three months. Um, Again, we don't know why that is. And we don't know why it's only some patients and not others. Uh, And and we have active research streams within HMRI trying to to examine. the causes and, and, and the reasons that some patients respond to one treatment over another. Um, probiotics, you know, everyone talks about probiotics, but the reality is that they don't they tend not to be clinically effective. In fact, there are very very few, if any incidences where um, in large you know meta-analysis of all the trials that have gone around on around the world that anybody's shown any real uh, therapeutic benefit from from probiotics there are always people who feel you know they'll take them and they they, they'll feel better or they think they'll feel better but when you actually start looking at clinical outputs uh probiotics tend not to be too effective now the other point are you are you
0: talking if you don't mind me interrupting for a minute are you talking specifically about crohn's and
1: well crohn's and ulcerative colitis are certainly more serious more serious
0: gi diseases
1: yeah so that they've been tried, but I'm not aware of any studies, say, with uh, irritable bowel syndrome, um, for instance, would be a good example that have been particularly strong with the use of probiotics. Now, the other thing you need to realize about probiotics is that uh, in the clinical studies where, you know, where you have seen efficacy, so generally these tend to be small studies, um, often the, the number of bacteria that, uh that are in the treatments are orders of magnitude more than the commercial formula that you can pick up in your pharmacist so often what we're, we're using you know that we buy over the counter um, just isn't strong enough that that it would have any clinical
0: effect anyway. Well, I notice they never advise you about a prebiotic diet, so they never talk about the, the, the diet that would help these bacteria to survive either. So it's a little bit counterproductive, a little bit of a waste of, of time and money in some ways, I would imagine.
1: And and that is a good point. You know, the reality is, is that, you know, we we don't really know enough about the microbiota to understand how a probiotic would actually work anyway. And there is a possibility, and, and, you know, I I say this is a possibility that with the right diet or or with a a lifestyle change, that maybe then a probiotic might have uh, a therapeutic uh, benefit. But, you know, I think we're still a little bit away from really understanding you know, the ecological niche of the microbiota before we can start saying that we can directly manipulate it for, you know, for an improved outcome.
0: Okay. That's and
1: that's for any disease.
0: Yes, that's a very good point. You're listening to Wellbeing and we're discussing the gut flora and its effect on mainly GI health, but could be health in general, we're just not sure. With Associate Professor Simon Keeley from Hunter Medical Research Institute. So Simon uh, my understanding is that for example vegans or vegetarians may they have a decreased morbidity mortality compared to the general populace
1: uh-huh. and one
0: of the hypotheses is that their gut flora is different to yeah. the gut flora of people say who eat quite a lot of animal protein. Yeah
1: so I mean that that makes sense and it's it's you know so within the microbiota there are there tend to be uh, primary degraders and secondary degraders so there's uh, you often find that what what that means is that as our food is digested um you'll often find that there you know maybe there's two or three steps to really breaking down the food and that's from the microbiota's standpoint and i think a lot of the the animal fats and animal proteins actually have uh, more than one or two populations that, that break down so you will have one that will b- maybe break a protein down to smaller pieces that another bacteria will utilize as a food source so the digestion tends to be a little bit more complex um, and as a result you know it, it's I guess it, it stands to reason then that if you don't eat um, uh, animal products then Uh, your microbiota will evolve differently and the main reason is is that your microbiota will respond to the food that you feed it so uh, if you're a vegan or vegetarian your microbiota is primarily designed to break down you know fiber carbohydrate products that you'd get in your diet um, and the proteins i guess that you'd get from maybe nuts or or where you source your protein now there have been some recent studies that i've actually compared uh directly the um the microbiota of of uh, vegetarians and and people who eat meat. And and what they actually found, and, and I guess it was it was a bit surprising, is that the um the vegetarian microbiota was more susceptible to change than the um those who, who weren't vegetarian. And again a problem with these studies is it was purely associative. So you know it, it was reported that this is the profile of a of a vegetarian. This is the profile of a vegetarian with disease, um, and this is the pro profile of of someone who eats meat and someone who eats meat with disease. But they they again, they, there's no causality or rhyme or reason to why these changes happened. At least that we know. I guess
0: um, there's no link between gut, because a big part of your immune system is your gut. It begins in your gut. So if you've got an unhealthy yeah. gut, that's not good for your immune system. Yeah. Um, we kind of know that that's where a lot of antigens originally or immunogenes, I suppose you'd say, get presented to the immune system and there's specific education of your immune system that happens at that point. Uh And so that's, I guess, what's hypothesized. But what we're saying is that there's no real studies looking at that specific immune link at this point in time
1: no so so we know a, a lot of these you know and this is this is the unfortunate thing a lot of what we know in that sense are from animal studies so we know that um animals that are germ free um have an underdeveloped so germ free means that they're they're raised in a completely sterile environment and they have no bacteria that live on or inside them they have a uh, a really weak immune system compared to a mouse that is exposed to bacteria. Um, we know that um, that that you know patients who or people who who have a lower diversity of, of um, microbiota te- again it tends to be associated with disease. Now we don't know the causality but the, the suggestion is is that you need a, a full and functioning microbiota in order to have a healthy immune system. Uh, the problem is, is that we don't really know what a full and functioning microbiota is. Um, everybody's micro- microbiota is slightly different. So your microbiota is a little bit like a fingerprint in that it will really develop based on your life experiences, your upbringing, your diet, the region that you grew up in. And um, and we know that it's, it's, it's OK that it's different because different bacteria can functionally play the same role in two different people's um, uh, digestive tracts. So what that means is I might have one bacteria that's very good at breaking down uh, a, a protein or, uh, or a carbohydrate, and you might have a different bacteria that does exactly that same role. In fact, you might have three or four different bacteria that play that role. So one possibility is, um, and again, this, this, this isn't well well understood, is that a lower diversity gives you, uh, gives you less redundancy. So you're more susceptible to having an imbalance because perhaps, uh, when you have inflammation or when, uh, when, um, you have some sort of, uh, infection, um, that you now lose a bacteria that is able to digest that, but you don't have anything else that can compensate, whereas somebody with a more diverse and, and, and stronger microbiome or strongly defined microbiota might have one or two populations that could take over and, and help. And that might be why we develop, say, food allergies, or that might be why we, we develop sensitivities to foods. Um, and again, it's, it's the research is only really just getting to the point with technology where we can start to understand how bacteria behave rather than just what their names are.
0: Mm, and also, I suppose, how the immune system...
1: How the immune system responds to them or changes to them. In, in
0: research, you need to keep something standard, and it, it's, there isn't a standard, is what we're yes. saying. So it makes the research
1: very difficult. It does. I mean, there are all sorts of inferences. For instance, there's there's a very good epidemiological study in in the US where they looked at early life use of antibiotics and, uh, and how children might be at risk of developing a GI disease and what they found is is that there's over a two-fold risk of um, developing uh, a food allergy if you've had more than three courses of antibiotics before 12 months. Um, Now the the signal was strongest if you've had those courses of antibiotics between 6 and 12 months which is generally around when children start to To eat solid food and therefore they get exposed to food antigens or food products so we've had a a hypothesis and we have um, uh, a stream of research that's examining whether changes in the microbiota um, might uh, change how food is presented to the immune system and whether that is why some children go on to develop uh, food allergy but the, the confounder there is, is the, the question you have to ask is well why were these children getting antibiotics in the first place was it because they were they were inherently more at risk of developing uh, a, a GI disease or or they were more prone to infections so again you know as you can see from that that example uh, the role of the microbiota is not always as clear cut as you think.
0: No, absolutely. Can I just ask though, was there a, a difference between those children that were, did they look at children that were administered antibiotics intravenously or intramuscularly versus orally? No, um, the, I,
1: I don't believe that data was in there. Most of these children would have been, it, it was usually or amoxicillin, which is, you know, probably one of the most commonly used antibiotics with children. Yes, no, particularly that's a I find my
0: little allergic you know, my little kids that go on to develop asthma, et cetera, the little bronchiolytics, etc. They they produce a lot of mucus and it does tend to make, you know, when they get a cold, they get very red ears and you're flat out trying very hard not to use Anything, yeah. particularly if they're totally miserable and febrile, yeah. But at least people are a lot more aware than they used to be, I think, of this whole conundrum. So I'm really hoping that your group hurry up and get on with it and help us out here because it's certainly a clinical conundrum.
1: It is. It is. I mean, look, you know, antibiotics are important and, and when they're when they're needed, it's important that people take them and take them correctly. Um, the unfortunate thing is, is that sometimes they're not needed and people take them anyway mm,
0: Or are given them. Thank you so much. It's been a really interesting discussion And I can see that probably we've all ended up with the facts, but a little more um, Where the jury's still out
1: Yeah, and, and I mean that's why we do research I and mean, a lot of these questions. They're, they're not easy to answer
0: mm, so essential to have places like HMRI. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, my pleasure, thank you.
0: Associate Professor Simon Keeley from the gastrointestinal unit at HMRI, lead researcher, among other things, I might say. I haven't sort of gone through all your credentials, partly because we haven't got time, but it's obvious that you started somewhere else in your medical training. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid, and all of us here at Wellbeing would like to say that we wish you well.